from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pen. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, we sometimes like to do 12 edits. There was Marilyn with her skirt blowing up in the air. What would a fascist-occupied America look and feel like? Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Thelma Schoonmaker has edited every one of Martin Scorsese's films for the last 37 years, as well as his very first feature film when they were both in their 20s. Since some of his movies are among my all-time favorites, I have always wanted to talk to this woman who has collaborated with him so much. She has cut everything from the balletic fight sequences in Raging Bull to the wild, drugged-out party scenes in Wolf of Wall Street. But her most recent collaboration with Scorsese is a very different film. It's called Silence. Our Lord said to them, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every living creature. It's set in Japan in the 1600s, and it's this beautiful, meditative, anguishing story of Jesuit missionaries, priests played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, and an ex-priest, Liam Neeson. The Japanese authorities don't want any missionaries there at all and are torturing the local Christians to whom they're ministering. What would you do for them? Pray and get water in return. Only more suffering. I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Go on. Pray. But pray with your eyes open. That's Liam Neeson in Silence, and Thelma Schoonmaker is here in the studio with me now to talk about that movie and how she's cut some of Scorsese's most memorable sequences over many years. Thelma Schoonmaker, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you. Uh, First of all, congratulations on finishing Silence, which was 30 years in the making? 30 years hoping to get made, right. And then we began working on it about two years ago in Taiwan. Um, And it was a very difficult shoot because they had to climb up all those mountains. And Marty, being a New Yorker, is not exactly into that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, Before uh, Silence, uh, his and your last film uh, was The Wolf of Wall Street, um, (laughs) which is – you know, if you were going to say it's like Obama versus Trump, how different, how opposite can we be? Exactly. <laughs> um, well, 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 if, for you, is is that a good thing to work on something so radically different in its themes and its logistics and its design, music, editing, everything? Absolutely, because that's one of the great things about working for him uh, is that every film is different. He never wants to repeat himself, and he sets himself certain challenges with each film, and I get to go over the hurdle with him, which is very, very exciting. It it makes every film a new, wonderful adventure, and I just love it. Right. Even though it, it lacks sort of... Uh Scorsese trademarks like, whoa, look at that complicated pivot, you know, tracking shot. There, there are some a couple of beautiful aerial shots. 
Well, that was very deliberate. Marty wanted to make it very simple and classic. Right. Um, because he felt the material, uh, demanded that. And also 17th century Japan, which right. was a very formal place, demanded that. So he, right. he wanted to really evoke the life of the villagers and then also the dilemma that Rodriguez is in with very formal classic, uh, um, filmmaking and didn't want a lot of quick cuts or jazzy camera moves or right. it, it, he didn't sense. feel that was right yeah i think he he deliberately did not want to make it look like any film being made today and he particularly did not want the music to tell people what to think First, he said he wanted no music at all, that we would use insect sounds, because uh, the Shinto religion in Japan is very much allied with nature. And um, also in the book written by uh, Endo, it is, uh, there are mentions of insects all the time, flies, cicadas, a bird sound. But then, and that's beautifully done. Yes, a lot of people say they do feel nature constantly. Yeah. A lot of cicadas. <laughs> yes. I've known him for a very, very long time, yes. and I was aware from the first film I ever worked on with him uh, that he had a deep interest in religion, right. but it was not cool for our generation in the 60s to be Christian. It was okay to be interested in Zen or right. you know some other exotic uh, form of religion, but not not the Christian religion, and so I think he had to a certain extent hide it socially. Really? Um, because that was always one of the interesting things about him is that, whoa, he's this, he's this obsessed, guilty Catholic guy. But it's in his films. Yeah. It's very much in his films. I'll say, and not just The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. He's always wanted to make a film about the collision of Rome and Christianity. I don't know if we'll ever make huh. it. But, uh, so he's always been deeply interested. He reads all the time, um, great classical works. Uh, and, and, and the other, I mean, one thinks The Last Temptation of Christ and as you say, all the other Christian imagery and themes in other mm -hmm. films of his. But then there's Kundun as well, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is in Asia. It's a mm -hmm. biopic about the Dalai Lama, but like, Kundun meets Last Temptation of Christ is silence a little bit, right? Yes. I guess you could put it that way, right? I think he was interested in Kundun, not only in in the re religion in it, but in what it was like for a little boy to be, yes. to become a king, a, you know, the focus of this incredible right. devotion. Uh, I think that's what attracted him at first, but it certainly is one of the three films that he considers his religious films, yes. Right. Mm. And speaking of Wolf of Wall Street, it was a very funny movie, among yes. other things. Uh, and, and I was thinking, wow, and I, and I hadn't thought of it at the time, but thought, wow, since After Hours and I guess King of Comedy 30-odd years ago, I don't think there have been Scorsese uh, schoonmaker comedies. Uh, from an editing and per pacing performance, is that a different language altogether? Well, yes. If you're dealing with classic comedy, when we were cutting, for example, Jerry Lewis's footage in King of Comedy, um, really great comedians have timing uh, ideas. Uh, they said that uh, Gracie Allen was one of the greatest, the wonderful radio uh, performer. And I television. Remember. Oh, I just loved her. Um, she had supposedly the greatest comic timing in the world, and they count. So, for example, uh, in, in Jerry Lewis would say to some of the people on the set, uh, I'm going to say something to you. Count to three before you answer me, because that's how the comic timing is built. Right. 
Um, so walk me through how you and uh, Martin Scorsese work together. I mean, you say you see a script, you see a shooting script right before he mm-hmm. shoots, and then then you wait till you get the film and, and mm-hmm. you do your thing. Is that it, or 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 and, and is he with you? Or do you sit down for a couple of days and say, okay, this I think goes here and this maybe is shorter? How does that work? Well, I always do the first cut. Um, On your own? Yes, from from his – when he looks at dailies with me, that's very important. And you do that as you're yes, shooting? Yes, hopefully. Yes, we weren't able to do it a lot in Taiwan because they were so exhausted when they got back from – and they were getting back so late. But uh, we – once he looks at dailies, then I uh, – he gives me a ton of notes and I tell him what I feel. He wants me to be a cold eye looking at the dailies sure. and tell him if there's anything wrong. I and don't he says the third take is great and you say, no, 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 that, it's the fifth take. That's right. So uh, I take very careful notes from that, and then I make selects in descending order of preference of the delivery of the line, for example, and then I make the first cut, and then as soon as he's through shooting, he comes in, and we do everything else together. We sometimes like to do 12 edits of our movies. And how many weeks is that? It depends. Sometimes it can be as long as a year. Really? Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it can be six months. We cut Cape Fear in six months. But never less than six months? No. Wow, that's a hard job. Yeah, it it takes a long time to get it right, you know, and uh So that's like 30 seconds a day or less. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just did the math. It is. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's it's just very it's we work really hard and we screen much more and recut much more than most editors are allowed to do. Fortunately, we are allowed to do that. Right. Um, I think more editors should live with their films longer. You have to live with the film. Absolutely. Uh, really or, or anything. live with it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's that's so important. And then, of course, all the finishing work is takes a long time putting the music in and the sound effects and mixing it and right. all of that. Uh, it and you, so are you still highly involved in that process? Oh, very much so, yeah. 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 I mix the the rough cuts. So you're or, really the director. You're really the filmmaker. We should start saying all. Thelma Schoonmaker films. Not at all. Marty is very much the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm his collaborator. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's true. I know. He's a great editor. He taught me everything I ever know about editing. So what did he teach you? Like, for instance, how... How do you use editing and holding on a character to build the character? What's an example of that? Well, one thing that would be something you might know, which is that in the scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is asking, what's so funny about me? What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's... You know, the way you tell the story and everything. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to f***ing amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? One of the interesting cuts that we made there is, uh, this is a situation that actually happened to Joe Pesci himself, and he told Marty about it, and then Marty decided to put it in the film. Uh So actually the Ray Liotta character is who Joe Pesci was, and Joe Pesci is playing the mafia guy Uh who's, who's tormenting him. And... Pesci told Marty, I knew at a certain point that I had to figure out a way to break it with humor or something or I was going to get killed. And so we spent a long time trying to figure out how long to wait for Ray Liotta to say, Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. <laughs> and we tried it with eight seconds. We tried it with seven seconds. We tried it with seven. To we end ended the tension that somebody's going to get killed s- right here. Six yeah. seconds of time. Right. And after the last explosive and threatening remark, How the f- am I funny? What the f- 
is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Instead of cutting to Ray Liotta and having him say the line right away, Marty told him, wait. And then... Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. Uh, and everybody starts to laugh. So we tried many different lengths of how long to hold on Ray Liotta. That's huh. the kind of thing that right. editing is about. And one of the things I tell students, too, that whole sequence was shot in a medium wide. There were no close-ups in it at all because Marty wanted to show what was happening to the people around Ray Liotta and around Joe Pesci. As it starts out very funny, everybody's laughing, then pretty soon things begin to get a little scary and they get scarier and scarier. And you see on the faces of the people around them that they're really beginning to get worried. And that was a great lesson for me in the right use of technique. You don't always have to have close-ups. Um, sometimes a medium shot or a wide shot is just as good. Well, and it's interesting that you said he said, wait, and there's a version of comedy going on in that horrible, oh, my God, scene. And, of course, it, it, you said about Jerry Lewis in King of Comedy, he said, Get, count to three. So it is a timing thing of, of a second or two. Well, editing about. is all about timing and rhythm, yeah. you yeah. know, between two actors. And uh, uh, so that we often will – um, delay uh, a line delivery or, for example, Marty sometimes will take the sound out as he did in, in silence. There's a scene where uh, Kichichiro steps on a, a, a Fumi and it swish pans to his mother who's and, horrified. And, and, and just so people know who that is, it's, it's this kind of skeevy uh, Christian character. Right, right, and, uh, and 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 who is forced to step on an image of Jesus? Of Jesus to show that he's right. apostatizing, giving up the faith, yep. supposedly. And the camera swish pans to his mother, uh, screaming in horror that he's done this. And Marty said, "Take the sound out," and it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And there are several other times where we did that in the movie too. Um, and there have been other times where we've done it in Raging Bull, for example, when Sugar Ray Robinson cannot get. Jake LaMotta to go down in the last crucial fight uh, and he can't figure out what he can do to get him to go down and Marty did this incredibly beautiful shot which where Sugar Ray pulls back, the lights dim and you just see Sugar Ray standing there breathing you hear just the sound of an animal breathing and our sound editor Frank Warner said to us, take the sound away And then go back to Sugar Ray, and the lights come back up, and the camera comes back up to speed, and he comes in for the kill. And so all of that is what makes editing and great yes. camera work and great directing. Yes. <laughs> um, you have made all of these movies, all of Martin Scorsese's movies with him since 1980. Recently, I, you've done two – you've cheated on him twice, right? <laughs> I mean, Bombay Velvet and Learning to Drive? That's right, because while he was trying to raise the money, finally. Oh, for silence? Yeah. Uh, uh, you had to earn a living. I had to earn a living. And uh, these were – people had come to him and asked if they, there was anyone he knew who could – so it was actually great. It, it was a great experience, both of them, and I, I was, it helped me financially get through the year, right? Really? And and did it feel like, oh, hey, I, I, I can do without him? <laughs> no. Um, it was it was interesting because I was not working with a director on either of them. And that was interesting. But You mean uh, you were just you just had the film and you were doing it your own? There were previous edits that I was re editing. Ah. Yeah. And so because there was no director, it was really my call. Um and uh, it just it, it was very interesting to work that way. Did you did it make you feel like, oh I can I can be a director? No, I would I I adore working. 
working with Marty. <laughs> it's yeah, very yeah, different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, Dalma, this was just uh, the greatest. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Silence is in theaters now. And to hear Thelma Schoonmaker give a blow-by-blow, an actual blow-by-blow of how she edited one of the great fight scenes in Raging Bull, go to studio360.org. Coming up next, a performance where nobody is supposed to know you're acting. I have to sort of lean in and quietly say, I'm with the program. And they're like, oh, the program. What one actor does to pay the bills. That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Every week, I talk to writers and actors and musicians and comedians whose greatest passion and priority in life is to make fantastic artistic things. But of course, it's rare to be able to earn a whole living on just your creative pursuits. The vast majority of artists have to lead kind of double lives, holding down day jobs to pay the rent so they can do what they love cheaply the rest of the time. The great American poet Wallace Stevens, for instance, was also an insurance executive. And that woman who just groomed your poodle might be working on an opera about the Chinese Revolution. You never know. In a new series called Day Jobs, we're going to regularly hear from creators about the work they do to pay the bills. Up first, Mr. Alex Kramer. Alex is an actor who lives in Brooklyn. This one time, I was waiting for the doctor to call Jesse Stone. And I get up, and I recognize the doctor. And he says, I feel like I know you from somewhere. And it's like that moment in the movies when everything stops, and the person sort of like cocks their head and furrows their brow. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, is he going to recognize me? I'm Alex Kramer, and I am an actor. But my day job is I work as an unannounced standardized patient. An unannounced standardized patient, also called a USP, is someone who goes into hospitals undercover to evaluate residents on their performance. When I tell people I'm a USP, most people think of this episode of Seinfeld. We're going down to Mount Sinai Hospital. See, they hire actors to help the students practice diagnosing. Where Kramer goes in as a standardized patient. And are you experiencing any discomfort? The haunting memories of lost love. I burned for her. Much like the burning during urination that I would experience soon afterwards. Gonorrhea! Gonorrhea! (laughs) The difference is that everyone in the room is aware that he's not a real patient. Whereas my job, nobody is supposed to know that I'm... 
roster. They know the program exists, and they know that at some point in time, they might have like a secret spy patient, but they don't know when it's coming. So I arrive at the hospital, and I take the elevators up to the sixth floor and walk down this dimly lit hallway. And down at the end of the hall is this unmarked door where my supervisors work. And it's there where I get my tape recorder and my clinic card that says who I am for the day. They'll give me a pretty generic name. Jesse Stone is one that I I remember getting. I'm a working-class guy from the Lower East Side who lives with his mom and works as a barback somewhere or at Panera or any number of places. And my case is generally, well, they call it the fatigue case. But really what it is is depression. I go in uh, having trouble staying asleep at night, but if they assess correctly, it should present as depression. I go into the walk-in clinic. I say, hey, I'm Jesse Stone, and I'm here to see Dr. So-and-so. And the person at the desk most of the time gives me sort of a confused look because they can't find me in the system and I have to sort of lean in and quietly say I'm with the program and they're like oh the program and I sit down and I turn on the tape recorder put it back in the backpack or the jacket pocket and I wait for the doctor to call Jesse Stone The first thing they'll open with is a very open-ended question. So what's been going on with you? And I'll start to sort of give my basic story. I've been having a hard time from sleeping. And um, my boss came up to me last week and was like, you know, you're like not focusing as much as usual. And it's because I'm just like so tired all the time. And then they'll ask, are you having trouble falling asleep? Are you having trouble staying asleep? I don't have a hard time falling asleep. It's more like I wake up at like 2.30 and then I'm up like for three, four hours or something like that. And at that point, so many of these residents will use the same canned sentence, which is, wow, that must be really hard for you. And so I'm left to be like, yeah, I guess so. It's the doctors who go the extra step to really sort of dig at the family history. Has anyone been on medication for depression? Things like that. That will trigger me to answer. I guess when I was like in middle school or something, my mom, she had like some sort of like mental something and went to the hospital and I had to stay with my grandma for a little while. And I think she might still like take something for it. At this point... They should have a sense that I have depression. And a great doctor will do a really good job explaining this and destigmatizing depression uh, because to hear that diagnosis is not so easy. Um, They have definitely tried to give me shots. Uh, I don't really like shots. They've tried to get my blood drawn. And those are really tricky situations because I'm not even allowed to accept a flu shot from them. So I've just basically had to be really 
averse to getting shots, period. I, th- I don't know. Maybe, like, w- when I come back. Once I'm done with the doctor, I basically evaluate the entire visit. That covers things from, you know, did the doctor wash their hands? Did the doctor take your blood pressure? To how I was made to feel in the course of the interaction. And if I have a follow-up visit scheduled, that needs to be wiped from the record. So someone from the program goes into the system and finds my name with a scheduled visit to the doctor and just wipes it clean. So I'm an actor in New York, and I've been here for the past three years. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing the, the regular actor hustle. I'm going on lots of auditions. And I had a recurring role in The Path on Hulu. I play Aaron Paul's brother. It's my brother. My brother. What do you want, Johnny? And this job... The mindset's different than on stage because, no, you know what? Not really. Because ultimately, when it boils down to it, all you're doing is tricking someone. Whether you're like having a crazy emotional moment on stage or like a really intense scene in a film, you're not only hoping to trick an audience that's watching, you want to be so in it that you're tricking your scene partner into believing that the artifice is real. It's sort of the model scene work, you know? Being a spy. That was the actor Alex Kramer. You can see Alex in the new season of The Path on Hulu. So do you have an interesting day job that lets you pursue your creative passion? Or do you know an artist who by day is a window dresser or a novelist who earns her living as a phlebotomist? If so, tell us all about it in a voice memo or email and send it to studio360 at wnyc.org and we may be in touch. One day recently, the most emailed story in the New York Times was about a provocative piece of film footage featuring Marilyn Monroe. It was long-lost 63-year-old footage of the director Billy Wilder filming the memorable scene from The Seven-Year Itch. You know the one. It's Marilyn Monroe's character walking over a New York City subway grate and the wind from a passing train makes her white dress billow up. Oh, do you feel the breeze from the subway? That scene was actually filmed twice. The first time was on a street in Midtown Manhattan late one night, but Billy Wilder decided to reshoot it later on a soundstage in Hollywood, and that's what appears in The Seven-Year Itch. Wilder's on-location footage is lost, but it turns out that all this time there has been a secret film of the shooting of that famous shot. And bear with me, because therein lies a tale. 
I first saw that secret footage 12 years ago on one summer night in August projected onto the side of a barn that my wife Ann and I used to own in upstate New York. It was this one-night festival of old short films that we held a few summers running for our friends that we had organized with our friend Bonnie Siegler, who is a graphic designer, who had just unearthed that unknown seven-year itch footage 50 years after it was shot. And therein lies even more of a tale, which I will let Bonnie Siegler tell you herself. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. So uh, this is like the greatest episode of Antiques Roadshow ever. (laughs) It's true. Um, Tell me and us about your grandfather, who lived most of his life in Manhattan. And you grew up around him and with him. But he had escaped Nazi Germany as a young man uh, at the last minute, right, in 1938. Exactly. My mom was born in 1936, and shortly thereafter, he decided that they had to get out. He he actually came to America to get a signature so that he could then go back to Germany, get his family, and bring them back to America. Basically, so people of Americans of wherewithal had to sign to sponsor. Emigrate. Exactly. Yeah. So they would take financial responsibility for you. So he pretended to be really rich, and, and he got a signature. And on his way back to Berlin, he was stopped by an SS guard, presumably wanting to take him away because this is 1938. And he, he and, and your mother and, and your grandmother lived in Berlin. Yes. Huh. He told the SS guard that he was representing Clark Gable. It happened one night, had been released in Germany. It was a huge hit, and he knew they loved Clark Gable. Right. He was a furrier, <laughs> but he, he went with the emotional story. So he said he was representing Clark Gable, and if he didn't get back to Berlin, the next Gable film wouldn't make it to Germany. And, and the guy bought it. So he's a grifter as well, and a con man. <laughs> so... After that, maybe then, but anyway, he comes to America, and uh, he he was a big amateur movie maker, right? Yes, he loved shooting film. He always had his Bolex with him, and he always shot the whole family, and especially my mom as she was growing up. He filmed them doing everything. And Bolex is the people have probably seen them if they're old, they've seen them in real life. But if they're not, they're the 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 standard sixteen millimeter hand-cranked movie exactly. camera that people had. Exactly. Um, so, it's the end of summer, 1954. I'm a few weeks old. Um, <laughs> uh, and and he, he lives in Manhattan, Midtown, somewhere, yep, right? Yep, 61st Street. A- and right near where he lives, he sees this hubbub, right? Well, around the corner from... He lived on Lex and 61st. So, around the corner, they were shoot. That's where the townhouse was, the actual location that for the townhouse. That one sees in the movie where, the, where Marilyn and Tom Ewell are... Are living. Living. Yeah. So he saw they were shooting that day, and he went out and filmed them filming. In daylight. In daylight. And also Marilyn walking around waving to the crowd and things like that. And then I guess maybe somebody on the set that day told him, hey, in a couple nights we're shooting down on 52nd and Lex. You want you should come down. It'll be at 1 a.m. And, and so he didn't know what that meant or what no. it was going to be. And, and he shows up there, and it's after midnight. So this guy, I mean, I don't know, for a middle-aged guy <laughs> earning his living, this is like – Kind of wacky young hipster thing. It is. <laughs> um, I think he was actually more excited about being close to Billy Wilder, who really? was also a Jewish a immigrant German, from yeah. Germany. So um, you have here a clip that we can watch together and talk about and describe and uh, see what we have. Yes. Here, here we are at midnight on September 15, 1954, and there is Marilyn with her dress just blowing up on the grate. 
And there's Billy Wilder uh, going from the camera to her. And and your grandfather is like, I don't know, what, a foot from uh-huh. Billy yeah. Wilder's shoulder? Exactly. Exactly. And that that's what he always, he told us. I was standing right next to Billy Wilder. Yeah. Well, clearly he was. And we see again and again the, the dress blowing up and the dress blowing up. And there, the dress really blew up, and you, I, I know that in his in, in Wilder's uh, autobiography, he said, no, 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 she had she had two pairs of panties on. It was it was cool, and you can tell she has two pairs of panties. Yeah, on. but but um, and they're kind of grandma panties too, a little, and and, and more than. However, the, the, this shot, as I said in the introduction, did not appear in the movie. Uh, the the shot that appears in the movie is you get the idea, but it's far more demure and tame than Very. this. Uh, Pretty risque shot. Yeah, in the in the real movie, it's like five seconds long, and it immediately pans down to her ankles. Yeah. Um, now this is also, I mean, in addition to being the famous one of the famous, you know, five seconds in in American cinema, it is also famously the night when uh, her her husband, her newish husband Joe DiMaggio, the great Yankee superstar. Uh, is was apparently dragged there by Walter Winchell, the gossip columnist, which is again like something out of fiction, and and is just grossed out and mortified by this whole thing, and 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 then they fight and he hits her and they get divorced. Exactly, and he was he had already objected to her sort of ex- exhibitionism, and then this was too much for him. Well, and the fact that you know the men of the world were fantasizing about his wife. Yes, and then there were something like. 1,500 men just standing there screaming at her while her skirt blew up in the air just put him over the top. So when you talked to your grandfather as a kid growing up, did did he think, wow, it was – I don't blame DiMaggio. It was – it was – sexy or anything like that? Not really. He he said DiMaggio was upset because you could tell – because everyone could tell she wasn't a real blonde. That was the only thing he told me. I didn't really even understand what he meant when he told me that as really? a child. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But but you know, he would just he just bragged about it. He went out one night and did this thing and the footage was oh somewhere. Yeah. So, fast forward uh 2005, uh your grand or 2004, 3, do we, uh, 2004. 4. Uh you're an adult, you're married. Uh your grandfather is 90 something. Yep. He had to move. He was forced to leave the apartment he'd been in for 30 or 40 years. And so we were helping him move, and we found a D'Agostino bag, like, buried in the back. Just like a plastic supermarket bag? Exactly. And this is you and your husband? Uh, yes. Um, just with film in it, loose, off reels, just a total mess. Some were on reels and some were off reels, and we were like, maybe that Marilyn film he mentioned is in this. Yeah. And luckily for you, for the Shaggy Dog story working out— <laughs> You are married, and we're married then, to a filmmaker who yep. knew how film worked and how to look at it and how to find stuff. Exactly, right? and and how to take good care of it and put it back on reels, and then he screened it all on a reel-to-reel at home and, you know, was looking at different family events, and which is amazing. New York City Kodachrome footage from the 40s and 50s, it was all incredible. But all of a sudden, there was Marilyn with her skirt blowing up in the air. Bonnie Siegler, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. At Studio360.org, we've got a link to a brief bit of this extraordinary film. Still ahead, how a show that imagines a fascist America in 1962 turns out to be a little more thought-provoking in 2017. 
when I see people in a you know gathering in Washington D.C. giving the Nazi salute, I do feel an eerie relevance. James Panawazic of the New York Times on the Man in the High Castle. That's just ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. I'm a fan of The Man in the High Castle, which is the Amazon show that imagines what the United States would be like if the Axis powers had won the Second World War. It's based on a Philip K. Dick novel, and it creates this alternative universe where the Nazis control the eastern half of the country and the Japanese control the west. Last month, to promote the premiere of the show's second season, Amazon installed an ad in New York City that took up an entire block. One of the biggest billboards in the Times Square area, and it's also one of the most controversial. Yeah, the ad for fictional show, The Man in the High Castle, depicts the Statue of Liberty giving a Nazi salute. Which not everybody loved. This is a symbol of freedom, and uh, to have that out here, it's offensive. Actually, I was fine with the billboard, but I do have to say that watching the second season of the show now after the presidential election is different than watching a year ago was. And that's what got James Panawazic drawing some connections. He is the chief television critic for The New York Times, and he wrote about the show in an article with the headline, An Alternative America Hits Home. I asked him, Why does it hit home now? Because there are actual real Nazis out there who are pretty psyched right now. You know, rampant on social media, on on Reddit, cheering on Donald Trump. And uh, post-election, you know, we've seen the spectacle of Richard Spencer leading his his minions in a, a, a Hail Trump chant. Well, in fact, we have a clip of that, uh, Richard Spencer being the head of a white nationalist organization. And this uh, conference, which took place in a federal building in Washington, not very far from the White House, just after the election. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! And, and people during that hooray thing, we're actually giving uh, Nazi salutes. Uh, Spencer afterwards said, oh, it was just exuberant. And I think he said even it was ironic in some fashion. Um, So cut to the fiction on TV, Man in the High Castle, uh, this new season. First episode, first few minutes, right at the beginning of the show, it's a classroom in this suburban American high school. Class, rise. I swear... I will observe the law, conscientiously fulfill my duties at home and school, be faithful and obedient, and pledge absolute allegiance until death to the leader of the Nazi Empire, Adolf Hitler. And, of course, Heil is hail. Uh, when Spencer used that phrase, hail the people, hail Trump, all that. He, he, the parallels he, were not lost on him. Yes. yes. The, the translations. <laughs> um, now, OK, there's Richard Spencer and there are these neo-Nazis using social media and there are hundreds, thousands, I guess, of people who for, in whatever sense are subscribe to this. They're not yet taking over our high schools, um, I guess. But, but I, I, I – 
I thought your article was really smart and and played it correctly because we can't, if we pay attention to the news, watch this show without thinking of the, the this part of the Trump phenomenon. There was some criticism. What did you make of that? Yeah, I expected that. I mean, I, I, I can certainly see that, you know, people are going to come across this and say, oh, the New York Times is saying Trump is Hitler, you know, and, right. I, was, and I tried to you know, make the point in the piece. Look, this this TV show is not a documentary, you know, it, it's a work however, of art. There's a lot of space between Trump is literally Hitler and <laughs> yes. everything is fine. Yes. And a lot of the stuff in that space is, you know, bad enough on its own. Right. It, I'm sorry. You know, I I. <laughs> I come from a Jewish family. Uh, when I see people in a you know gathering in Washington D.C. giving the Nazi salute, I do feel an eerie relevance. You know, that that's not the same as saying Donald Trump is totally a Nazi. Right. And I think people are wrong to read that you know that that into that. But um, it's disturbing. And your kicker made me go hmm, uh, which was about how reality sort of had overtaken this fiction. Uh, quote. If you wanted to ask what would I do if it happened here in the past, you had to watch a TV show, implying that Americans now have to ask themselves, hmm, what will I do because it now may actually happen here? Yeah, which is, you know, which is not to say that we're being ruled by Nazis, but you're seeing the stirrings of things that are illiberal, anti-democratic, bigoted. One thing that I led into that with is that in the new season of, of, of The Man in the High Castle – uh, one of the, one of the curiosities is that in this alternative history, it turns out that there were, in fact, still Japanese American internment camps, um, and it went differently in in, in this case in the, in the show. Mild spoiler alert, but you know they, they were uh, we lost the war. Um, they were liberated by the Japanese, and the Japanese Americans held there were were viewed hostily by the the conquering Japanese. But but in any case, uh, which seg- is a great seg- fictional. Twist. Segway from that to the fact that not long after the election, a uh, Trump supporter was being interviewed on Fox News by Megyn Kelly, asked about uh, Donald Trump's Muslim immigration ban, a Muslim entry ban, uh, justified it by citing the historical precedent of Japanese-American internment camps. I know the ACLU is going to challenge it, but I think it'll pass. And we've done it with Iran back, uh, back a, a while ago. We did it during World War II with Japanese, which you know, call it what you Come will, on. maybe, maybe you're wrong. Not, you're not proposing we go back to the days of internment camps, I hope. No, no, no. I'm not proposing that at all, Megan. But what I am you know saying better is that than to we need to protect that. America I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that gets people scared, Carl. Right. But it's, I'm just saying there is precedent for it. And I'm not saying I agree with it. But in this case, I absolutely believe that a regional base... You can't be citing base- Japanese internment camps as precedent for anything the president-elect is going to do. Yes, that this is not an exact parallel to you know fascism in the 1930s or the 1940s. You know, it doesn't have to like nothing bad comes on you all at once. And even if it's not the same kind of bad right. thing, when you start encountering these things, that's when you start asking yourself. You know, you start asking yourself, I'm actually living in a situation where you know things like this are being talked about, and. Getting back to the man in the high castle, I think that one thing that has been very interesting about that show, it's not the greatest show on television, uh, but some of the most interesting things it does, I don't know if you'd agree with this, is is dealing with the culture of occupied America, which is right. basically asking themselves, what would a, a fascist occupied America look and feel like? They very carefully thought through, oh, what would the popular music be like? Well, you'd remove all the non-Aryan influences. And, and you know, it would be this very sort of bubblegum pop. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I think there's a Rock Hudson movie in the first episode, that sort of thing. Well, with, with, but, but deracinated in that way. And, and it 
brings up this sort of, you know, curious you know, insinuation that if you were, if, if an invading army were creating a fascist America at that time, you'd have some raw materials here that you could build, you know, it's not just like imposing Teutonic culture on a subjugated country. Um, the other thing you mentioned that's in the second season that sounded really interesting, which is a police show on TV that seems to, that justifies the police state Nazi tactic. Uh, American Reich, it's called. Now you listen and you listen good, mister. You cops always towing the Nazi line. Let's say we tow your line. Sieg Heil. American Reich, coming this fall. Again, in, in this American world of uh, uh, Nazi-occupied America, there's still primetime television. You know, there's still very almost familiar looking uh, like dragon dragnet it, no it basically is modeled on a dragnet type uh, yeah. television show that's you know it's not it's not to say drag the original dragnet was authoritarian in its way it wasn't fascist but you know right. but there, but there are elements of familiar culture that you right. can take put a little spin on them and they can be adopted to these sort of purposes um and one of the most interesting things to me about this whole resonance is that it was entirely accidental. They, right? I mean, they, they, they made the first season before Donald Trump ran the, this new one when he couldn't possibly have yeah. won, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think this was ever their intent with the show. I mean, you know, alt- uh, obviously alternative histories involving World War II are, are you know, a very, you know, long time thing. Right. I, and, uh, you know, arguably in, you know, pop culture and literature, there are even closer parallels. You know, look at something like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, where, where that is actually, you know, it imagines a Charles Lindbergh administration. Right. And actually that fascist type regime in America being voted into power. But yeah, the, things like this, you know, happen accidentally all the time. 24 was picked up by Fox before the September 11th attacks. Right. Uh, you know, it just happened to become this, you know, signal show of the, the early war on terror era after the fact. So you, you said uh, you don't think it's the greatest show on television. What, what do you make of it as a, as a show apart from all this political relevance? It, you know, it's entertaining. It's, uh, to me, it is the you know, TV equivalent of a page turner. It's not big on plot, and they really had to you know, make a lot of departures uh, in order to, to create an on, you know, ongoing storyline. Story, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's, uh, it's a single novel, and it's, it's sort of anti-plot and very you know, philosophically musing. Uh, there, you know, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot about fate and you know, religion and Dick. Eastern myst- Yeah, exactly. But but the the result is that there is you know a, a great driving mystery and a lot of action and it's exciting that the characters unfortunately and this is what I think keeps it from being a very a very great show is that the characters are just not as developed anywhere near as well as the world is especially the central characters there's a fair amount of wooden acting in it the production design though is is it, it's amazing to watch yeah. the way San Francisco and New York look and how the the industrial design in the east is somewhat different different than the industrial design of the West. That's pretty cool. The, the Nazis are really into their infrastructure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's like another... Yeah, that's true. Jim, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I took a little trip to my hometown. I only stopped just to... James Ponowazic is the chief television critic for the New York Times. The Man in the High Castle was just greenlit for third season, 
But in the meantime, you can watch all of Season 1 and Season 2 on Amazon. And that's it for this hour of Studio 360. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes... Kari Pitkin. Andrew Adam Newman. Louis Mitchell. Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. Max Gibson. Sophie Caddo. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Before we go, when I was a little kid in the early 60s watching The Dick Van Dyke Show, Laura Petrie seemed like the ideal modern woman. Then when I was a teenager in the 70s, so did Mary Richards. And when she died at age 80, I found I was still full of admiration for the great Mary Tyler Moore. May she rest in peace. And thanks for listening. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, remember when Leo DiCaprio had to play J. Edgar Hoover up into his late 70s? He's just got these prosthetic jowls hanging off his face for the second half of the movie, and it's just, you know, we've put men on the moon, but we still can't make convincing jowls. The screenwriter of the new film The Founder makes an argument against cradle-to-grave biopics. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.